Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, good whatever it is, wherever you are when you hear this. I hope that you've had a great week. I hope that everything has treated you well and that you're enjoying yourself. You're getting to spend that time with your loved ones and doing some of the things that you enjoy. Life is short and we can't control everything, but hopefully you've had a good week and you've been able to enjoy yourself. As you know, I've been covering over these series of FBI files. And before we get into tonight's meat and potatoes and we get into that FBI rundown, I've got a couple of really interesting things that I wanted to share with you. Now, the first one is something that I saw the other day on Twitter. Now, the Paranormal Sun is on Twitter, but I don't go on there a lot. And the reality is there are some good people, but there are so many toxic people on there that I don't go on there a whole lot. But uh, I get a email every day or so with a bit of a roundup, some of the things that are going on, and I was quite surprised to see this tweet. It was actually a retweet, but I'm going to read it to you in its whole. So I've got a very close friend of the show in New York that does memes about the Skinwalker Ranch and a few other things, and I told my friend that I definitely had a tie-in on tonight's episode regarding that. So, that tie-in is this. For those of you who may not know, Skinwalker Ranch was sold a few years back, I want to say about five, six years ago, so Robert Bigelow owned it for quite a long time. Now, he sold it to an investment group, and the leader of this investment group is a multi-billionaire from Utah. His name is Brandon Fugel. Now, I saw this pop up, like I say, on my Twitter kind of uh, digest email, and I thought, well, I got to go and read that because he doesn't tweet a whole lot. So Brandon tweeted this. He said, this will prove to be groundbreaking. Reality is not what it seems, dot, dot, dot. He retweeted this from Christopher K. Mellon. The world's foremost authority on UAPs, Jacques Vallée, is publishing a new book with the provocative title, The Best Kept Secret. I would not be surprised if it takes the UAP discussions to a new level. Now, long-term listeners of the show and anyone who knows me that has discussed the paranormal, the unexplained, and in, in uh, particular, UFOs with me, will know what I think of Jacques Vallée. To me, Jacques Vallée is one of the Mount Rushmore figures in the UFO community in ufology. He's always treated it as a serious subject. He doesn't just go out there and throw mud at the wall to see what sticks on either side. So be it the quote-unquote true believer or the debunker, Jacques Vallée doesn't do either. He really goes in and tries to get provable data. Jacques Vallée has been involved with NASA and everything else. Jacques Vallée is one of the people who turned up to investigate the Colores Brazilian UFO flap that I covered over, and he's been involved in numerous other UFO cases over the years. Well, anyway, this is very interesting because Jacques Vallée's books, when he writes them, they're very deep, very thought out, and superbly well-researched. Jacques Vallée is not the guy that will just rock out there and throw out a best-of book to try and make some money. Jacques Vallée's got enough money, and he's worked very hard in his life, 
And he's at the point in time in his life that if he's releasing something like this, I feel there's definitely going to be something extremely interesting in there. Now, that's part of it. The other part is, and I didn't get a chance to tell this friend of mine on Instagram because I had to get some sleep, but uh, tonight on Coast to Coast AM in the U.S., Robert Bigelow was being interviewed by George Knapp. So I listened to what I could. He was on the first two hours, and by the time you take the commercials and the ad breaks and all that out, you're probably talking about more like kind of an hour and 20 minutes of time. Well, anyway, um, yeah, I didn't get a catch at all because I had things going on at home. But some very candid remarks from Robert Bigelow. Uh, he was very candid, candid about how he feels that NASA is not up to scratch right now. A lot of the people involved and some of the agencies involved. And he was also very, very candid about Skinwalker Ranch, some of the experiences that happened there, and how they affected him. And Robert said that he had entities he feels follow him from the ranch, and other people did as well. And some of these people were government employees. So it was a fascinating listen. Now, unfortunately, I don't have my Coast to Coast membership anymore. I used to, and that's basically how you can go and listen to it in the archives. But I had to give it up quite a while ago because I just didn't have the money for it. But if that episode resurfaces somewhere, I definitely want to go through and listen to it with a fine-tooth comb. Because Robert Bigelow, some people have accused him of being a shill for the government and a sellout and many other things. But Robert Bigelow is a very intelligent man. He's very wealthy and he's very well-connected. So anything that he's saying like this in the public forum, he has thought about. He's not just one of those guys that's going to go rocking out there. You know, the proverbial person who gets drunk in a bar that's got secrets and starts spilling them. That is not Robert Bigelow. So yeah, it was a very interesting interview. And I would encourage any of you that have the ability to go and check out that episode to go and check it out by all means. So that would have come out on the 24th of January, 2021 in the U.S., because of the time I'm recording. Yeah, so 24th into the 25th overnight. So yeah, definitely go and check that out. It was a fascinating interview. And like I say, I really want to get back into it. And George actually wanted, he was joking with Robert, but he said, oh, why don't you come back on, on Sunday? I'm free. And, <laughs> and Robert Bigelow Kind of said, oh, that's a bit soon, isn't it? But George was having a laugh with him. I've always liked George Knapp, like I say. He's one of my favorite hosts on Coast to Coast AM. Now, I've got some other serious business to attend to on the program, and it's one of those things that I just haven't gotten around to doing. It's been on my mind for quite a while, so I'm going to get into it right now. I appreciate everyone's support, all the listeners, everyone who's reached out to tell me thank you, they appreciate what I've done and everything else. And again, there I've got some more stuff in the works. I'm always trying to work to improve the show, to improve your experience, to grow the show, to let other people know about it. And I've told you time and time again, one of the things that you can do is to tell other people who you may feel would be interested in the program. And to each and every one of you who has done that, I really appreciate it. I've started to see some growth, like even since the New Year episodes, I've started to have a few more new countries come in. My home state of Idaho, which ironically was not on the list of states in the U.S., has been crossed off the list with a few others. 
And like I say, I appreciate everyone who supported me and supported the program. And there are certain people who I've long considered field correspondents for the Paranormal Sun. And I've jokingly referred to a few friends before as state president, but I want to make it a bit more formal because to me, this is something very important. You that send me the articles and support me and and have requested that I cover certain topics, you are definitely a huge part of the program, and I appreciate each and every article you've sent to me and each and every update you've given me. Each and every photo you've taken was something odd and sent it to me. And so I want to formalize the hard work that you've given. Now, there are many podcasters out there and other friends of the show that aren't on this list. Now, that is in no way, shape, or form a knock on them. Many of them still support me, still send me things from time to time. But the people on this list go out of their way to give me information, give me things to cover, and ask me to cover over things. So. I'm going to read over to you the current list of all of the field correspondents and the presidents of their respective chapters for the Paranormal Sun. And in future, I want to find a corner on the website to be able to enshrine each of your names because of all the good things that you've done, all of the positivity you've given me, and as I always say, being the wind in my sails. So, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina... Thank you so much for everything you do, all the articles you've sent me, all the positivity. You've definitely earned to be field correspondents for the Paranormal Sun in North Carolina and represent the Paranormal Sun in the state of North Carolina. To Nate in Pennsylvania, the same. Nate, you are officially my field correspondent in Pennsylvania, and more importantly, you are the president of the Paranormal Sun in Pennsylvania. Timmy in New Jersey, same goes to you. Timmy, all of the positivity and the appreciation you've shown to me through the short time we've known each other, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. To Adriana and Nico in Texas. So Adriana, you were my original correspondent, and I've never forgotten all of the positive things you've had to say, the support you've had for me. I'm sorry that the... Fortunate son has had to go a bit by the wayside with everything going on, but trust me, I know everything you've done, all the support you've given me, and while you were out there on the front lines dealing with this pandemic, it's not easy, and I fully understand that, and I, I really respect what you do, and I really appreciate you taking the time to support me and support the paranormal son. To Jeff in Wisconsin, Jeff, thank you again. You're always firing my synapses, getting me thinking about different things to cover, different stories and articles. And again, while you are posting your own content, so Jeff, thank you so much. And you are now the official delegate for the Paranormal Sun in Wisconsin. To Chris and Max in Illinois, couldn't forget about you. You've been one of my longest-term supporters in my life, Chris, and everything you've done for me over the years has been astounding. And I appreciate your help with the Halloween episodes in particular. I really appreciated having those wonderful stories from you. And as I say, you represent the paranormal sun in the state of Illinois. Now, the next one as well. Dave at the Old 77 in Jeff City. 
I haven't known you that long, Dave, but you're an amazing friend. You're always sending me through things on Facebook Messenger, always asking me, have you seen this article, bro? What do you think? It's amazing. And again, you really keep me from getting in those doldrums where I go, oh, well, what do I look at? You know, what what's new? Man, you're just always firing stuff through. So full respect to Scotty, but I know this is really your ballywick. And so I dub the the Paranormal Sun field correspondent and president for the state of Missouri. Now, to a very special friend of the show who's been very supportive. He's got his own podcast called the Xander and Stone Podcast, Xander and China. Thank you so much again. You ask some really pertinent and intelligent questions. You don't make fun of me for some of the things I've covered or some of my thoughts on the paranormal and the unexplained. Xander comes at things with a bit more of a skeptical mind, and I've told you time and time again, my listeners, there is always room for a skeptic on the paranormal sun. There's no room for debunkers. And Xander is a very polite skeptic. He asks the right questions. And on his show, he see he covers it as he sees it. He doesn't beat around the bush. So Xander, thank you so much. And you now represent the most populous country on Earth for the paranormal sun. Go out there. Let them know, hey, if you like my show, you might like my buddy's show as well. So, I've got a couple more here. So, Shambra Early on the Isle of Wight. Shambra, thank you so much for all the kind words you've had to say. Thank you for your support. And you've given me a few ideas to cover over this season, season three, that I'll definitely be getting to. And you've got some of your own amazing and astounding stories. So, full respect to you. Thank you so much for your support. And you are now the official field correspondent for the Paranormal Sun on the Isle of Wight. And you're also the president of the Isle of Wight chapter. So if anybody there gives you any any guff, you say you speak for the Paranormal Sun. And last but not least, again, my friend who does the Skinwalker Ranch page, the Skinwalker Ranch memes page on Instagram out of New York. You represent the Empire State for the Paranormal Sun. I appreciate all of the kind words you've had to say. And more importantly, as I say, with each and every one of you, those conversations that fuel and fire my synapses get me thinking, get me remembering old cases and things I want to cover over. You're always making sure that I know about something new out there. You've been very supportive about these CIA shows that I've been doing. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And as I say, you're now the president of the state of New York for the Paranormal Sun. So thank you, each and every one of you. I appreciate everything you've done. If anyone out there in the audience says, hey, how do I get in on this action? Well, folks, it's pretty easy. Start by going over and following the Paranormal Sun on Instagram. And on the Paranormal Instagram page there, you'll find a link in my profile. And that is basically a link tree to everything. You can go into Facebook group. On the Facebook group, I've been doing lives lately, live video streams. I'll be doing more. I want to start scheduling them once or twice a week so that people actually have something that they can plan for. I've just lately been doing it kind of off the cuff because I wanted to do a few things and say thanks for a few things. One of them being that the show has now passed a thousand followers on Instagram. So each and every one of you who supported the show, thank you from the bottom of my heart. On there, you'll also find links to the webpage. You'll find links to the Patreon that I'll be revamping. There's links to buy merchandise for the Paranormal Sun if you'd like. Again, I'm going to be revamping that. I'm going to have some new stuff out. I'm going to be going through that in the next few weeks while I've got this time between seasons. 
And, of course, go out and tell anybody who is into this sort of thing. If you like this show, suggest this show to others. If you're a listener, if you're someone who catches this and says, hey, I'd like to be on the program, or JT, I'd like to be, I'd like to have you on a program, send me an email, theparanormalsun at gmail.com. That's the best way. That's generally how I keep things straight, especially to do with the show, especially people requesting to come on. I've got a few people in the pipeline, but I'm just trying to finagle the times and make it work for them as well as me. It's always easy when you're someone like me. I got lots to do for the show, but I don't have a day job right now. And when you're trying to work and balance everything else, I fully understand that it can be difficult. So each and every one of my field correspondents, who are also the presidents of their respected states or countries, you're welcome on the show at any time. You have an open invite. If you ever want to come on and tell me something, or even if you want to send me through something and have me read it, if it's some of your stories or it's an update from your area, then by all means, you know who to hit up. Just send it through to me, and I'll be happy to. So like I say, if you want in on this action, folks, you know how to do it now. So with all of that having been said, again, thank you so much for all the support and everything you've done for me this year, already in 2021. It's already a much better year in my book. Now we're going to get into the CIA files. That's the reason you're here, isn't it? I don't have any free bourbon or champagne or anything like that to give you, unfortunately. So you'll just have to make do with these astounding CIA files. Now, this is one of the files that I heard the initial person on YouTube reading. So, this one I've seen before. And this one says WA site. This one looks like CHGO8731. So, maybe it's got to do with uh, Chicago. It says scientific and then redacted. So, again, those of you who are new to this series, anything that's been blacked out, I'm just going to say is redacted or if I can't read it. Refer flying saucer letter, Leon Davidson, case redacted, copy of ATIC letter, not X, not received here. I accordingly called Colonel Baird again today. He assures me it has gone out and copy is in mail to me. He says he rather expects further inquiry from Davidson. I am not, I am not sure I agree. And then it's just got approved for release in 1978. So, it says, flying saucer letter. Um, and this was, okay, I've got a date here. August the 5th, it looks like, 1957. Wow, okay. So, somewhere around here, if I can find it really quickly. I wrote down what that ATIC stands for, and I read it in the earlier episode, but I'll just see here if I can find it, folks, really quickly. So here we go, folks. I might not be the most organized, but I do remember when I write things down. So ATIC stands for Air Technical Intelligence Center. Now, through the beauty of editing, I'm going to pause for a minute and see if I can find either of these gentlemen mentioned in this document. Now, here I am, folks, and as always, I do my best to come through with the goods, and I think I've found them here. So the first one is about this Colonel Baird. Now, I found a obituary about him, 
And it says it was he was born February 21st, 1934, and he passed away February 26th, 2018. So that would put him right about in that correct timeline. He would have been 23 when that 57 letter came out. I also found some stuff, but it was unfortunately in books, and it wasn't easy to extract. But it was basically saying that um, Baird was involved in House appropriation meetings about um, about budgets to do with the defense. So, yeah, I would say that this is that man. Now, unfortunately, it's just got a picture of him. Doesn't really have much about his life. At least I'm not. I'm just seeing a picture of him. But anyway, I would say that is probably him. Um, because of the timings, and definitely U.S. Air Force. So that's interesting. Now, wait, folks, it gets better. So this Leon Davidson. Okay, so we're going to start with Leon Davidson, who was a scientist involved in the creation of the atomic bomb. Leon Davidson, born October 18, 1922, died January 1, 2007 was a chemical engineer and scientist, one of the team that developed the atomic bomb, involved in a flying saucer memo. Yeah, that's pretty damn interesting, I'd say, wouldn't you? Okay, post-war career, because I just want to cover what he was up to. In the mid-1950s, he joined the Nuclear Development Corporation of America in White Plains, New York, entering the emerging field of computer technology and development, following stints in management at several large technology companies, including Union Carbide, Teleregister, Western Union, General Precision Laboratories, and IBM, where he was the manager of advanced applications development. He became an independent consultant, working for both government clients, including Oak Ridge National Lab. Now again, for those of you who don't know, Oak Ridge is where they refined plutonium during World War II, and commercial clients, including Mini Computer Systems of Elmsford, New York. On the side, he formed his own technology consulting and design company, Metro Processing Corporation of America, to explore and exploit the emerging technology of touch-tone dialing, now used for push-button phones. In the mid to late 1950s, Davidson volunteered at the Civil Defense Filter Center in White Plains, helping track and identify aircraft flying over the New York metropolitan area. He devoted much of his free time to the study of unidentified flying objects. He convinced a congressional committee to force the Air Force to permit him to publish and distribute in its entirety the Air Force's Project Blue Book Special Report 14, the primary source book on the Air Force's findings relating to UFOs. Davidson firmly believed that the objects reported to be extraterrestrial spacecraft were, in fact, experimental aircraft developed by the Air Force or the CIA. On June 29, 2018, Davidson's son, Edward Davidson, found an article containing a photograph clearly showing two saucers in front of a hangar and surrounded by workers. Two small planes and a few trucks in the photo. The left side of the smaller saucer is clearly marked USAF. The larger saucer has what appears to be USAF also, but is not as clearly visible. An avid thinker, Davidson spent many hours analyzing major national and world events, including the Kennedy assassination, questionable presidential elections, and the Jonestown Massacre. Now, look, folks, the name was ringing a bell, but I definitely knew nothing about this article. I'm going to see if I can find it, because I'm reading this directly out of Wiki, so I'm hoping 
that there's going to be a picture here. Because if there is, I've never seen it. Okay, come on. Wow, I'll be damned. Yep. I will be damned. Two flying saucers. You can't describe them as anything else. They're flying saucers. Wow. Okay. What I'm going to do, my friends, is I'm going to include a direct link to this in the show notes before I forget, because you want to see this. This is I'm I'm just blown away by this, to tell you the truth. I mean... I'd never even heard of this, and I mean, I'm pretty into this. I'm about as far into it as you can get without being like a proper research researcher who does books and everything else, and here I've never heard of this photo. I've never seen it. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Holy cow. How do you top that? That's the first article. Okay. Now, I had another website that I wanted to read something about Leon Davidson for you as well, because this also came up. White Plains man had his UFO research monitored by CIA declassified docs. And this was from Louis Milano, and it's from I-95, the home of rock and roll, which is obviously a New York radio station, published on January the 15th, so just 11 days ago. Leon Davidson was a native of New York City who was born in 1922. Davidson was a highly educated man who earned a Ph.D. from Columbia University School of Engineering and Applied Science. As a student at Columbia, he was recruited into the Manhattan Project. In the late 1950s, Davidson became a sought-after talent in the new field of computer development. Davidson got contracts from the Nuclear Development Corporation out of White Plains, New York, and worked with IBM and Union Carbide, which I've covered. In addition, Davidson became an engineering design supervisor at Los Alamos. Didn't hear about that. Where he assisted in the development of the most cutting-edge atomic technology of the day. So I knew about him working on the atom bomb, but there was nothing about that in his wiki article. Right around the same time, in the late 50s, Davidson became a volunteer for civil defense and tracked UFO activity. Again, we've covered. It's also around this time period that Davidson became a nuisance to the CIA. CIA documents from that era that were once considered classified have been made available to the public. Okay, and then they're talking about the the document drop that uh, I've got my hands on. Greenwald recently shared thousands of CIA documents. Like Greenwald, Davidson was requesting information from an array of government agencies. Davidson was writing an article for a publication the CIA referred to as a space magazine and was seeking information about a communication the government claimed was Morse code. In a document from 1957, an agency member whose name was redacted wrote the following, Dr. Leon Davidson is on our backs again. He wants a verbatim translation of the space message and the identification of the transmitter from which it came. Your attention is called to a letter to Davidson from Wallace W. Elwood and Wallace W. Elwood, Captain USA Air Force, ATIC, dates 5th August 1957, in which Elwood tells Davidson the message was identifiable as Morse code and from a known U.S. licensed radio station. This was intended to satisfy Davidson that he did not find, in fact, that he did not, in fact, have a space message. He is not satisfied and explains the characteristics of the sounds on the tape recordings of the message are not Morse type. 
Can you obtain from the ATIC the message translation and the transmitted? Shortly, we'd like to dismiss this man once and for all. If you cannot obtain this information, Davidson is going to pressure us for permission to use Chicago office letterhead and use other U.S. government letterhead he has received in his matter in an article for some space magazine. We are sending by Buckslip this date a publication of Davidson criticizing the Air Force for concealment of information on flying saucers. Incidentally, Davidson is no fool, and it appears that the ATIC is treating him as one if they think he can be satisfied with an SOP such as Captain Elwood's. That message is either cut off or redacted from this point on. It's unclear because the print on the documents is difficult to read, which I can vouch for. All reference documents are pictured below and listed by reference numbers, so that's um, neither here nor there, but it's in the article. I'll put a link in the show notes. Davidson was calm and pleasant. This is another document that they're talking about. Same time, 1957. Davidson was calm and pleasant, but very determined. In view of our WA-26258B, we wish to bow out of this thing, but urge that headquarters, redacted, and the, and the ATIC concern themselves with this man and try to satisfy him. Please do not let us down on our agreement to communicate with him. We are committed. There are several mentions of the ATIC in both documents. This appears to reference a department, research lab, or physical space where evidence is analyzed, maintained, and or stored at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's either an official code name or an unofficial nickname. They keep saying it's attic, like upstairs, but I'm sure it's A-T-I-C, as it, what I read before. The Air Technology, oh, sorry, the Air Technological Intelligence Center. I'm sure that's what it is. It is paired closely with Wright-Patterson or placed in the same sentence. This example comes from a third CIA document where agents speak of Davidson's pursuit of information about the audio recording. Received a letter from Davidson in which Davidson asked if the redacted tape had been analyzed by ATIC at Wright Field. Wright Field is an Air Force military airfield and installation in Ohio that is commonly referred to as Area B or Wright Pat. Today there is an airman's attic on nearly every Air Force base in America that accepts donations for those in need. Among other items, clothing is donated. So I, I get what they're talking about, but I'm still pretty sure it's this abbreviation, this... Uh, four-letter abbreviation. Believe it or not, the article that Leon Davidson was writing for a space magazine is hard to find. What I did find is a listing of his series of pamphlets on flying saucers. Columbia University's library has an archival collection on their webpage. They list seven titles with the words flying saucers in the name. You can request archive box for only three of the seven. By all accounts, Davidson's flying pamphlets are rare. Flying saucer pamphlets are rare. The easiest to access and purchase is called Flying Saucers, an analysis of Air Force Project Blue Book Special Report 14. Amazon sells the fourth edition for $19.99. I was able to find a photocopied PDF version of a pamphlet by the same name but a different edition. The government pushed back hard against Davidson's attempt to release a book on the topic. He convinced a congressional committee to allow him to publish and distribute it. Project Blue Book is the most infamous official U.S. government investigation into, US, into unidentified flying objects. That's true. The program was led by Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a professor and astronomer. Hynek's work is so well known now that there's a dramatic TV series about it on the History Channel, by the same name. But in 1966, when Davidson's third edition review was publishing, 
It was the big news to the American public. This is what the Amazon book description says of Davidson's findings. Examines the last Project Blue Book report by the U.S. Air Force, number 14, showing how the government lied in order to cover up not only their own experimental craft, but also the possible existence of extraterrestrials. For many years, this volume has been almost impossible to obtain. Davidson died in 2007. And I'm just reading through to see if there's any anything else. Yeah, um, there's not. And they don't talk about this photo that his son released. Um, they're just talking about the 180 days, about releasing everything that we've already been over. So yeah, look folks, um, wow, so first document, and here we are rocking up on 32, 33 minutes, so I'm not sure how many more I'll get through, but I just couldn't go past this, it's just, like, it was too good of an article for me to just go past, so I'm currently putting a link in the show notes, so you'll definitely have that there, but make sure on that other one that you go through and you check out the photo because it's an astounding photo and it is it's freaking flying saucers that's all it that's there's no other way to um describe it it's crazy so anyone out there in the listening audience that wants to discuss further this document it is number 11 so remember that's number 11 if you want me to cover it over further with you or send you a link no problem it's a small PDF, so I can just send it through to you. Now, here we go, number 12. Unclassified. Just scrolling through what it is. Former Joint Chief, Joint Staff, Washington, D.C. FM, FBI's London, U.K. So this looks to be another one of those like I've covered before uh, that is being circulated around. Yeah, Washington, D.C., Fort Bragg, Fort Meade, Honolulu, Okinawa, so major bases. And this one is from the USSR. Subject, UFOs reported near Moscow. Again, folks, we're not wasting any time, are we? Moscow, TASS International Service in Russian. 1055 GMT, 15th April, 1990. So again, uh, this is the TASS is like the Russian, the USSR's wire service at the time. So think of like Reuters or AP. That was their version. Source, Moscow TASS International Service in Russian. Text, Moscow, 15th April, TASS. The newspaper Rebochaya Tribunia reports today on unusual phenomena 47 kilometers along the Yaroslavd highway outside moscow again sometimes these words are cut off and it's hard to read it all so sorry it has been going on at night since the 12th of march so they're saying that this ufo sighting's been going on for a month wow to start with large shining spheres and discs appear in the sky their place is then taken by three groups of objects some are like pineapples but about six meters long which is around 18 to 20 feet the characteristic pineapple platelets cover the whole. Others are not unlike huge triangular milk cartons. And the third group are like upside-down basins, 12 to 15 meters across, which is like about 25 to 32 uh, feet. The, uh, sorry, more than that, um, 30, 
38 to kind of 50 feet across. And that first one, the one that's 6, that'd be more like 18 to 20 feet. The whole holes of the objects flare up, and as the glow fades, they simmer, they shimmer and flicker with iridescent flames. They fly quite quickly and are capable of stopping suddenly and darting to one side. They move in total silence. There is no whistling or humming. Sometimes a shining cloud emerges over the nearby forest. Armed with field glasses, the local people spend the nights on the rooftops, reports the newspaper. Several hundred people have seen the unidentified flying objects, and all describe them in roughly the same way. Wow. See, again, I've never heard of this case. And again, you know, I'm not Russian, but I'm pretty well versed on this stuff, folks. And you would think something like that, showing up just outside of the Russian capital for a month, would be at least a bit more well-known by someone like me. That's crazy. So, um, interesting. Again, we're going to use the magic of editing, and I'm just going to very quickly see if I can find anything on this. Well, folks, this is freaking astounding. It's unbelievable. So, I couldn't find an article about this, but I found something better. I actually found a two-and-a-half-minute video segment from Discovery TV. Uh, I can't remember which channel. I think Discovery Science. An old documentary. And I'm going to insert the audio here for you to check out. Now, there is a link in the show notes. And I strongly encourage you to go over there and check it out. It's only two and a half minutes. And it's a pretty amazing video. I mean, it's more than likely like footage, you know, restaged. I wouldn't say it's of the actual event. But it's still fascinating, and I think it's something that nearly every one of you will learn something new about if you go over and check this out. So without any further ado, here's that audio. The former Soviet Union, March 1990. Interceptors scrambled to investigate pulsing lights northeast of Moscow. For three and a half hours, they stalk the UFO, which moves at speeds up to 3,000 miles an hour. No radar image appears on the screens of ground stations. Thermal imaging produces results. The UFO is photographed. The secret results are proof for the Chief of Air Defense Forces. This 1990 case is the only one supported by evidence. All other possible contact reports by both civil and military aircraft are merely eyewitness accounts. This is the only case for which there is concrete proof. His pilots do not fire on UFOs. As far as official instructions are concerned, we in air defense have certain unwritten rules that mean we only use radar and not armaments against UFOs. Nor are personnel seeing Western stealth planes. We never thought it was American stealth aircraft. The radar characteristics are not the same. Stealth behaves like a plane in terms of speed and maneuverability. UFOs are very different. Their files list many cases. 
this pilot finds a light closing on him. There's contact. The aircraft goes into a rapid descent. On landing, there's damage to the left wing. From 1977 on, an official Ministry of Defence study collects hundreds of reports. They hope to gain alien technology for military use. The covert research continues. So there you are, my friends. Two documents and two home runs, as far as I'm concerned. That is document 12, if you end up wanting to discuss this with me. Like I say, make sure you keep in score at home if there's any of these that interest you. So, oh boy, this is going to be a hard one to read, it looks like. Number 13. Now, this one is from the 11th of June, 1957. Memorandum 4, redacted. Through, redacted. And I can't even read any of the stuff at the top besides the date. Subject, unidentified flying saucers, UFO, in brackets. So, yeah, that's interesting. One, in our discussion on UFO, you asked three questions, which for convenience I am using as side headings below. And then you can't really read the rest. Has the responsibility for following UFO been transferred from the Air Force to CIA? Question. And it's really a shame because there's these, the bits I'm reading are typed and then there's handwritten notes and you can't read what the handwritten stuff says. No, the Air Force and CIA are both still following UFO. Okay. All right, well, that's good. So, sorry. I thought that was handwriting. Maybe it is, but it doesn't matter because I can't read it. Who in CIA is responsible for UFO? The DD slash I slash OSI. Phil Strong, specifically. Philip Strong, General Strong, who I covered in the last episode. <laughs> Interesting, again. So, DD, Department of Defense, I, Intelligence, and OSI was the opera, the, uh, sorry, it was the Office of Strategic Intelligence. It was the forerunner of the CIA in World War II. What is the CIA doing on UFO? Question. The following is a brief sketch of activity which I obtained from Phil Strong's memory. Five years ago, in the summer of 1952, OSI undertook a study of UFO by IAC Action. OSI formed a panel consisting of the following members. Lloyd Berkner, President Association of Universities, President, President International Council of Scientific Boards, member of the President's Scientific Advisory Committee. So, in other words, folks, they didn't just grab any old scientists. H.P. Robertson, Chairman, Physics Department, Caltech, once WSEC Civilian Director, Science Advisor to SHAPE Commander, for two years, OSI Consultant, Sam Gudemit, Chairman, Department of Physics, Brookhaven National Labs. Wow, man, folks, these are some hot, these are some heavy hitters. Formerly member combined scientific and military team during post-war period examining German nuclear program. Uh, Luis Alvarez, one of country's top physicists at Berkeley, also at Los Alamos. Uh, and then it's getting hard to read. Thornton Page, John Hopkins University. The Air Force and Navy, including the Navy's FIC, supported the study. Phil says the report was extremely thorough and was distributed to the IAC. Copy attached. 
The last two pages contain the summary. 2. Since the study was made 17th January 1953, OSI has maintained a watching process on UFO. Although very few reports are received, those which do appear are skimmed by the following units. If concerning natural phenomena, they are turned over to the geophysicist physics unit of the Fundamental Science Division in OSI. If they concern the hardware aspects of flying craft, they are turned over to the former weapons unit concerned with aircraft in the Applied Science Division of OSI. General Watson, ATIC, Phil Strong believes, maintains one or two officers following the UFO question. This ATIC effort is all that is left of an earlier, larger Air Force project called Blue Book. Copy of project report dated 5 May 1955 is attached. Conclusions on page 94 concerning take on this question. Phil states that very little comes in and that nothing has been received of importance. Two or three years ago, Redacted reported seeing a flying saucer in vertical takeoff in the Soviet Caucasus, but nothing was developed by intelligence. Analysis of this case is attached. This incident is the only flap that Phil can remember. 3. I asked Phil point-blank if the unexplained category could include actual, secret Soviet-advanced aeronautical equipment. He replied, conceivably yes. However, speaking from memory, he felt that the possibility existed that if further information was obtainable, the remaining small percentage of unknown might be explained. 4. I also asked Phil point-blank if there was any special collection going on against UFO targets. He replied that there was no collection as such, but that radical aeronautical designs advanced not limited to flying saucer types was a high-priority collection requirement, which makes sense. In this regard, he added that OSI has no information concerning new Soviet designs which would indicate possible construction of flying saucer-type aircraft. The Applied Sciences Division of OSI and ATIC work closely together in following radical new designs and advances by the Soviets. Again, exactly what you would expect the government to be up to. 3. For your information, I learned from Howerton and Strong that the British and Canadians have a very sensitive project in this field. Apparently, the Canadians run the project, which has completed the design of a flying saucer. Howerton states that this is, he has seen the prototype. Howerton describes the saucer as just that, in shape with jets on the circumference. The jets are in vertical position for takeoff and are shifted horizontally for forward movement. Strong, speaking from memory, believes the design called for operations at 80,000 feet or better. The responsible aircraft company is the Avril, yeah, and um, I've heard of this flying saucer, a jointly owned British and Canadian outfit. According to Strong, the USAF initially provided some of the funds, but is no longer doing so. Howerton advised that the Air Force has some projects along this line. And then it's redacted, and then it's Office of Director, Planning and Coordination Staff. And that's it. So that is document 13. And again, folks, it's very interesting. Top-level scientists, I mean like world-class top-level scientists, working with the CIA, investigating UFOs, which supposedly, again, they said for time and time again that they never really did that and... You know, that it was only Project Blue Book and Project Grudge and Project Sign that did these kind of things. Again, I I don't know what else to say. It's 
It's every time I read these documents, it's astounding. Now we're going to stop after three because otherwise we're going to end up with a big full long episode. And yeah, I just got to move on folks. I got to keep on keeping on. So with that, I hope that you've really enjoyed this. And again, we're up to nearly 50 minutes here. I hope that you've enjoyed this. Astounding. I mean, all three of these documents are really important documents as far as I'm concerned in this area. And wow, I hope that you enjoy it as much as I have, my friends. If you got any questions, again, just try and remember those document numbers when you come back to me, and I'll be happy to send them off to you as well. So thank you. Have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. And if you want to get in touch, you know how to get a hold of me. Take care, folks.